Good morning, everybody. Youth are, are dismissed. He already said that. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Good to see you all here today. I uh, just want to say that QR code that came up on the screen, that was for our membership course. If you're interested in getting to know your new church family and becoming a member of the church, the membership class is on April 15th. And if you scan that QR code, you can sign up online. Put that QR code. Yeah, there it is. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way with pen and paper at the Connection Center where you can write with a pen on a piece of paper if you're old school. Amen. Let's turn up the lights just a little bit in the house, shall we? I don't want you to be in the dark. Hmm. All right, I'm going to come to you this morning from Luke chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. Luke chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. We're going to put it up on the screen so that you don't have to take out your Bibles if you brought your Bibles, great. If not, no problem. This is what it says. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds and give us understanding. We love you today and we thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Luke chapter 15 is the geometric center of the gospel. Luke chapter 15 is the interpretive key to understanding the gospel, the Bible, the Christian life. It's all in Luke 15. If you understand Luke 15, you'll understand everything that came before Luke 15 and everything that comes after Luke 15 because Luke 15 is the geometric center of the Christian faith. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. And he tells these three parables in response to what's happening in the atmosphere right at that moment. Jesus always did that. He told parables based on what was happening in the room. And if you could look at the room and divide it into two or three groups of people, Jesus always addressed every group of people in his parables. So if you were in the room when Jesus told a parable, you were in it. It was always about you. As a matter of fact, at one point it said, when Jesus finished saying these things, the scribes and teachers of the law sought to kill Jesus because they knew he was talking about them. So the first thing you need to know when you look at any one of the parables of Jesus is that he's talking about you. Now in the room in Luke 15, you've got two groups of people. One, you've got a group they call the publicans and sinners. The publicans were the tax collectors. They worked for the Roman Empire. They collected taxes from the people of Israel, but most of them were crooks. Because if your tax was $1,000, they would tell you it was $1,200. They'd pocket the extra $200 and give the other $1,000 to Rome. So tax collectors in Israel had become very rich. And these were Jewish people taxing Jewish people and robbing Jewish people. They were considered the worst kind of sinner. They were outcasts. But there was a group of tax collectors in a room with Jesus. How did they get in the room with Jesus? He welcomes them in. 
And he doesn't even require them to fix their lives first. He doesn't have one of his disciples standing at the door going, fix the following things in your life, then you can come in the room and hear from Jesus. No, no, no. He says, come on as you are. And then the word sinners. The rest of the people are called assorted sinners. The word in the Greek is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. You aim at a target and you miss the whole target. It doesn't mean, you know, to hit the the furthest concentric circle on the target. It means you miss the whole target. You miss the mark. It means your living is foul. It's all off. It's all wrong. Among those sinners were prostitutes, liars, cheaters, swindlers. Just a whole assortment of sinners. But it says they drew near to hear Jesus which tells me that there's a fundamental difference between the way we do Christian faith today and the way Jesus did the Christian life. Because what tends to happen is we get all dressed up and come to church because we already know him and we like him and we're trying to live for him. But I think if Jesus were here today, I think the churches would be packed with prostitutes and drug dealers and like the worst of sinners. I know none of you fall into any of those categories. This is a perfectly holy crowd here. But there was something about the presence of Jesus that was welcoming to everybody. Come on in. And they felt it. They felt love oozing from him. They were drawn to him. He was like a magnet. But there was another group of people that were actually repelled by him. They were the religious leaders, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the priests, the church board members, the theology professors. They stood along the back wall of that room, and in their hearts they were judging Jesus. This man eats with sinners? This man welcomes sinners and fellowships with them? And so Jesus is looking at these two groups of people and he's looking at the dynamic range between one and the other. And he responds to the situation by telling three parables. First two parables are pretty standard for Jesus. He's responding to the Pharisees and teachers of the law who are saying, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. And Jesus says, well, which man who has a hundred sheep, if one wanders off, doesn't take the 99 and lock them up in the pen and then go off in search of the one. And when he finds it, he hoists it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And then he calls all his friends and says, come rejoice with me. My sheep was lost, but now it's found. And then he tells a second parable. What woman who had 10 silver coins, if she lost one coin, wouldn't sweep the house and search diligently until she had found it? And when she found it, she would call her friends and say, come rejoice with me, for my coin was lost, but now it's found. And he ends both parables with this statement. In the same way, there's rejoicing in heaven whenever one sinner repents. What Jesus is communicating in those two parables is value. He's saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you don't know how valuable these people are. They don't know how valuable they are. 
Why do I welcome them and eat with them? Because they're valuable. Just like a man who loses one sheep, he doesn't say, oh, well, I still got 99. No, that one is valuable. Even one being lost hurts the heart of the shepherd. He's got to go search even for the one, even if it was his own fault, even if he wandered off on his own accord. I still got to go look for him because he's valuable. And the woman with the coins doesn't say, oh, well, I still got nine more coins. No, that tenth coin is valuable. I can't sit here and just lose one of my coins. I'm going to search for that coin until I find it. And what the Pharisees and teachers of the law don't realize at that moment is that the difference between parable one and parable two is that in parable one, he told the Pharisees that these sinners are valuable. But in parable two, he told the sinners that these Pharisees are valuable. Because the sheep is lost outside the house and the coin is lost inside the house. And Jesus says, everyone is valuable. Whether you're lost outside the house or you're lost inside the house, you're valuable. I've come to search inside the house and I've come to search outside the house. I don't care if you're out there on the corner or in here in the church. If you're lost, I'm coming to find you because you're valuable. The one thing that it's really hard for us to get is how valuable we are to God. Do you know how valuable you are? I, I am a father now. My daughter is 12 years old. And I realize that there's no way for me to communicate to her how valuable she is. Because when you are a child no matter how much your parents bless you. Do you know what children think is most valuable to their parents? Obedience. When you are a child, you don't realize your parents value you. You think what they value is your obedience. What you think is, if, if I just do right, mom and dad will be happy with me. All I want to do is do right so that mom and dad are pleased with me. And if I do right, then they're pleased with my doing right. What you don't realize as a child, what's almost impossible for you to grasp with your limited capacity for understanding yeah. is that you're just as valuable when you don't do right as when you do do right. Yeah. Yeah. And that when you're being disciplined for doing wrong, it's not because you've lost your value. Yeah. It's because you're so valuable that mom and dad are doing everything in their power to restore you to it. Jesus, looking at these two groups of people in the room, realized that the only distinction between the two of them is that one was obedient and the other was disobedient. And that these two groups were simply focusing on obedience and disobedience as if that was paramount to God, as if that's all that God wanted was obedience over disobedience. And he says, no, your focus on obedience and disobedience is clouding the actual issue. The actual issue is that you're so valuable that even in your disobedience, God has to come seek you and search for you and try to redeem you and try to restore you. 
If you understood how valuable you were, then you would begin to understand the gospel that John 3.16 tells us that all of us know that God so loved the world, which means the world was so valuable to him and everyone in it was so valuable to him that he couldn't stand the fact that we were lost. And so he sent his only begotten son. He said, you got to go down there and you got to search for them and you got to redeem them and you got to do everything in your power to win them back, to buy them back, to redeem them, to give them a way back because they're too valuable. My heart is broken for the fact that they're lost. He gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You should not perish. It's not the father's desire that you perish. He doesn't take delight in you perishing. You should not perish. The father was in heaven thinking it's wrong that any of them should perish. Should not perish, but have eternal life. That's why the shepherd leaves the 99 and searches for the one. I can't stand the thought that that one will perish. And that's why the woman sweeps the house clean and looks for the lost coin. Jesus is saying, you teachers of the law are just as valuable to me as these sinners are. You're all valuable. And you're so valuable that I've come to redeem you both from your disobedience and your false obedience. Because the problem with the Pharisees and teachers of the law is that they thought they were acceptable to God because of their obedience. They woke up every morning asking the question, how can I obey God? What can I do to obey God? Got to make sure I'm not disobeying God. Got to obey God. Got to obey God. That's all they talked about, thought about, prayed about, and worked on doing was obeying God every moment of their life. And the message that Jesus communicates to them is, you're just as lost in your false obedience as they are in their blatant disobedience. Because at the end of the day, the heart of the matter before God is not obedience versus disobedience. There's something deeper. And in order to get to that something deeper, he has to tell him a third parable. There was a man who had two sons, an older and a younger. The younger son said, Pop, if you were to die today, how much would my inheritance be? The father said, a lot. He said, no, but for real, Pops, how much is a lot? He goes, you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. All right, let's calculate this. Calls his accountant in the room. Says, calculate my net worth, divide it by three. Why? The older son gets a double portion. The younger son gets a half portion. So in other words, if there's two sons, divided by three, the older son gets the first two parts. The younger son gets the third part. Calculate all of my assets, divide them by three. So the accountant comes in, calculates the assets, says, here's what you're worth. How many billions of dollars? And this would be the older son's inheritance, and this would be the younger son's inheritance. And the younger son goes, that's how much I'm worth right now? He goes, well, yeah, if I die. He goes, Pops, I don't want to wait till you're dead. Cash me out right now, Pops. I want my money. I keep my mind on my money and my money on my mind. I'm about to go to the club and make it rain. 
The accountant and the older brother are standing there. They hear what the younger son says. And the older brother takes a step forward to slap him upside the head. And in actuality, in first century Palestine, if a younger son were to have said that to his dad, the elders of the city would grab that boy and beat him at the gate of the city. Because what he literally just said to his dad was, I wish you were dead. Translation, all I want from you is your blessings. I don't need you. Sound familiar? I've known a lot of people who don't even believe in Jesus but tithe because they believe they'll get a blessing from it. I had a friend who was a drug dealer, never darkened the door of a step, but gave his tithe every month. I said, why? He said, because I'd be getting blessed. So you don't want the presence of Jesus. You just want them blessings. Cash me out, pops. The cash me out pops lifestyle is the lifestyle that says, I'll take them blessings. I'll pray for healing when I'm sick. I'll pray for protection when I'm in danger. I'll pray for provision when I'm broke. I'll pray for restoration when I'm broken. But I don't want you. I just want you to cash me out. And you know what the father did? All right. He looked at the account and said, do it. The account's like, do what? Cash him out. What do you mean, cash who out? Cash my, my son here. Cash him out. Give him his money. What do you mean, give him his money? What are you talking about? I said, cash him out. Yeah. Do you know how many assets I might have to liquidate to cash him out? Liquidate those assets and cash him out. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands why the father would bless the son who is disobedient and rebellious. And every single one of us can look back on our lives and see seasons in which we were walking in blatant disobedience and rebellion against God, yet he still blessed us. Never saw myself as the younger son. But in those seasons, when I asked for his blessings but rejected his presence, I was literally saying, cash me out, pops. Wow. Yeah. And he's, he said, okay. Here you go. There you go. He comes to the door, and there's several suitcases full of greenbacks, cash money, unmarked bills. Maybe it was Bitcoin. I don't know what it was. <laughs> Just give me your coin base. Yeah. The son loads those suitcases into his Ferrari, looks at his older brother and the other servants and gives them the bird, looks at his dad, says, see you, pops. Wouldn't want to be you. Speeds out with music blaring. The older son is angry because yeah. all the older son can think is he doesn't deserve that because I've been more obedient than him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen somebody else get blessed and ask yourself, why do they get that, but I don't get that? Yeah. I've lived a better life than them. Yeah. I don't do the stuff they do. I don't lie and cheat the way they lie and cheat. 
I've gone to church more than they've gone to church. I've prayed harder than them. Why do they get what I don't get? That's the older son mentality. I deserve it because of my obedience. He doesn't deserve it because of his disobedience. And whenever we think that way, we're clouding the issue because the only thing in our minds is God wants my obedience and he doesn't want my disobedience. We're not realizing that there's something deeper. The moment the younger son asked to be cashed out and the moment he took those suitcases and threw them in his car, he was lost because he lost himself. He lost himself because he put the value in the wrong place. The value was in the money. The father saw the value in him. You are the value. And when you understand that God values you above everything else, your natural response is to value him above everything else. Because we love him because he first loved us, which means that if you're ignorant of how much he loves you, you're also ignorant of how much your soul longs to love him. And that is the state of one who is lost. Lost because you are alienated from the love that is there for you that has been there for you since before the foundation of the world, the love for which you were created, that God created you with a unique QR code that unlocks a particular dimension of his love that nobody else gets but you, that the father literally created you because he had a surplus of love on the inside of him that demanded a unique object. And so he fashioned you individually in your mother's womb and made you the perfect bullseye for that expression of his love. Nobody gets this love but you, but yet you have separated yourself from that love, alienated yourself from that love, you are lost. But the younger son doesn't know he's lost because he's rich. He doesn't know he's lost because his external circumstance does not correspond to his internal condition. He's broken, but he thinks he's whole. He's poor, but he thinks he's rich. He's full of sadness, but he thinks he's glad. He's in deep sorrow, but he thinks he's rejoicing. All because he put the value in the wrong place. Mm. He put the value in the money. And so what does the father do? Mm. Unlike parable one and parable two, the father does not leave and go search the way the shepherd leaves and searches, the way the woman searches. The father in the third parable waits. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for a change of circumstance because he knows that we tend not to wake up until the circumstance changes, when my external corresponds to my internal, when I'm externally broken, then suddenly I can become aware of the fact that I'm internally broken. When I become lost externally, I can suddenly become aware of the fact that I'm lost internally. Sometimes the worst thing that could happen for me is I can strike it rich because it will cloud my heart and blind me to the fact that I'm I'm poor and impoverished on the inside of me. The father waits and what he sends in pursuit of his son is a circumstance that will befall him at just the right moment. 
The younger son goes off to a far country, as far away from the presence of the father as he can be. And begins to have the time of his life. He lives the life that in our flesh we all long to live. Unbridled, unending, and unlimited pleasure of every kind. He spares no expense. Then the scripture says, until a famine hit that land, and he began to be in want, which is an interesting turn of phrase. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As long as he lives in the Father's house, he does not want. But outside the Father's house, as soon as a famine hits, he begins to be in want, which is a sign that he's left the shepherd. He's so hungry that he hires himself out to a pig herder who throws him in with the pigs. And it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but it says nobody would give him anything, meaning he was working, but he couldn't, couldn't even afford to eat the pig food. Yeah. That's how low he was. Look at verse 17. Yeah. Verse 17, put that up on the screen. But when he came to himself, I want you to see this. He's sitting in the pig's pen, He's starving to death, and he comes to himself. He awakens to himself, which means that he had been alienated from himself all of this time. Alienation from God is ultimately alienation from yourself. A lot of people run from God because they're trying to find themselves. Mm -mm. You run from him, you, you lose yourself. This young man had to lose everything to come back to himself. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? The word there, and to spare, in the Greek is perisoo or periseo. It means overflow or abundance. He's literally comparing himself to the most miserly of his father's servants and saying, the smallest and poorest and weakest of my father's servant is in a better state than I. Suddenly, he realizes that the least person in his father's house is in a better condition than he is. Realizing, when you come to your senses and realize that the, the weakest most miserly Christian, real Christian that is, has more peace than I do, has more joy than I do, has more hope than I do, has more faith than I do, has more support than I do, has more power than I do. He comes to his senses and says, man, even the servants in my father's house, they've got an overflow or an abundance. They've got hope and hope to spare. They've got joy and joy to spare. They've got love and love to spare. Even the weakest, most miserly believer in Jesus Christ has an overflow, has extra. That word is used earlier in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
And it says, after everybody ate and was full, they gathered up 12 baskets full of the periseo, the overflow, the abundance, the extra, more than enough. He realized that he was rich with the riches that could be lost, that could be squandered. But in his father's house, there were riches that could never be lost, riches that never perish, spoil, or fade. And so he comes back to himself and he says, verse 18, I will return to my father. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and before you. When he comes to himself, the next conclusion is, I'm going back to my father. I got to get back to the father. I'm going to my father. It's the natural result of awakening, coming to your senses, realizing that the worst kind of life is a life lived in alienation from God. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, verse 19, I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now his heart is situated in the place where he's ready to approach the Father in a way that he's never approached him before, with no demands, with no sense of entitlement, with no sense of personal righteousness, not feeling like he deserves anything. A place that neither he nor his older brother had ever been. His older brother believed, I deserve it because... I'm obedient. And the younger son believed, I deserve it because I'm your kid. Neither of them were able to actually receive the true riches of the father because both believed they deserved something from him. You can take it down now. The younger son returns. The father standing on the porch. Watch this. The father sees him a long way off and leaves the porch and runs to the son, closing the distance between him and his son. The son begins toward the father. The father closes the distance instantly. The the son takes one step towards the father, and the father closes the rest of the distance. Listen, how powerful one step towards God is, is beyond what you can quantify. Making a decision to take one step towards God. You have no idea how powerful that is. That even if in your heart, your heart opens and says, Father, I'm coming to you. I'm returning to you. Jesus, I turn to you. Just that one step, even in your heart, even silently. He closes the distance. And he grabs his son and begins kissing him. Why is he kissing him? Because what's of greatest value to me is not the money that you squandered, but you. It's hot up in here. Somebody turned down the heat a little. Or is it just me? I'm sweating like a... a... I'm not going to say nothing. I'm not going to say it. I'm I'm growing, folks. I'm learning. He starts into his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And what I could just see is the father interrupt. Quiet. And the father does not address the son. He addresses his servants. 
Bring a robe and put it around his shoulders. A robe comes out around his shoulders. Put shoes on his feet. Shoes come out. Put a ring on his finger. A ring slips on his finger. Now go, watch this. This is, this is missing from the first two parables. Kill the fattened calf. Okay, you got to get this because I'm about to bring this home. I'm bringing this in for a landing. Don't worry, I know. I know it's been a while. I'm bringing this in for a landing. Every rich family always had a baby calf that was being fattened in preparation for a celebration. Always keep a calf being fattened because one day we're going to have cause for the greatest rejoicing, the fattened calf. It was a baby calf that they they set it aside. They said, this, we're going to fatten this. And they fed it the choicest of foods. And they took great care so that it didn't move around a lot. And they massaged it. They babied it. Here, eat some more, eat some more, eat some more. And it would just get fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. It was the highest quality beef in the land. Do you realize that the majority of people in the ancient world lived their entire lives and never tasted one bite of the fattened calf? And I was thinking about this and I realized that the, the closest thing we have in our day and time to the fattened calf is a type of beef called Wagyu. Yeah. Y'all know what Wagyu is? Wagyu is actually a breed of cow that they breed in Japan. But there's also a specific way that they raise these cows so that their meat is the most tender and fatty and expensive And today, just like in the ancient world, the majority of people in the world live their entire lives and never taste of the fattened calf. Matter of fact, have you heard of Kobe beef? Kobe beef is a particular kind of Wagyu. Now, if you, matter of fact, let me me see that right there. I, I, I happen to have. This is Wagyu beef. Can you see how fatty that is? See the marbling in that junk? <laughs> not yet, not yet, not yet. Did I call for that yet? Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. You see the marbling up in this junk? If you could see it being cooked, matter of fact, I think, I, I think we're cooking some. Somebody's cooking some. Can, can we see? Can we see? It's the most tender. It's the most juicy. Look at, see it, see it being cooked? You see that? All you put is salt and pepper on it. You don't have to put no oil just salt and pepper, and you cook it on one side, cook it on the other. You've got to eat it medium rare, or it's ungodly. <laughs> and and when, you, when you get that in your mouth, there's no like chewing, you know, where you get that big, big chunk of meat in your mouth, and you're like chewing it forever. It's like bubble gum. No, 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 no. This stuff like melts in your mouth. It like dissolves. It's like, but it's not... It's like, it's like, it's so, so tasty, so beautiful. The father says, kill the fattened calf. Break out the A5 Wagyu. That's Eric's son in the kitchen. Eric's son is the owner of Pursuit Foods, and he's provided the Wagyu beef today. Take a look at that. Uh. Listen, I apologize in advance to every vegan and, and vegetarian... 
we can pray for you and get you delivered real quick. I wanted you so badly today to understand the level of rejoicing that transpired in the father's heart when his son returned. And remember that Jesus is speaking to a room full of people and telling them this story. And he's literally telling them, all of you are the sons who are returning to the father and the father is rejoicing in you. And he will spare no expense to celebrate your return. And I just wanted you to know the joy of that. And so we've got some fattened calf for you to taste of. Come on in, ushers. Come on in, ushers. You want to taste the fattened calf? Give it, ushers. Everybody get some fattened calf today. This is Oprah. This is better than Oprah. But you only get one bite because it's too expensive. Give me one of them fattened calves. Um. Just take one and pass it down. Take one and pass it down as quick as you can. Don't eat it yet. Just hold it. Just hold This is better. We had communion on Friday nights. This is Resurrection Day communion. This is, this is the next day communion. This is, it's a celebration. Look at this. Do you, know, do you know the father was communicating to the younger son? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I lost all of y'all. I just lost you. You forgot the message. You forgot the sermon. The father was communicating to the younger son that you are so valuable to me that I'm going to demonstrate how valuable you are to me by sacrificing the thing that is most valuable in my house. Are you hearing me? Did you hear that? Some of y'all missed that. The fatted calf was the most valuable thing in the father's house. The father says to the younger son, you are so valuable to me that to demonstrate your value, I'm going to sacrifice the thing that is most valuable to me in my house. You may partake. medium rare. Perfect medium rare. Someone asked for it, well done. We very politely and firmly asked them to leave. You guys to find another church, I'm sorry. This is just a little prelude to your Easter dinner. Can someone just come just play softly at the piano? I'm bringing this in for a landing, I promise. Watch this. You know, I wanted to play that video. You know what that um, anniversary, A Bay Bay? Anybody know what that is? Where they do that dance? You, you, You know what that is? No, 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 no. I can't do the dance, but they all do it together. I wanted to show that, da- that, that video because that's what they were doing in the Father's house. 
They were dancing and they were rejoicing. Here's what happens. The younger son returns and the father is able to bring him into the house, which is where the father wanted him all along. In the house. And they're dancing and they're rejoicing. But the older son out in the field hears the commotion and goes, what's happening over there? They said, oh, your younger brother returned and your dad killed the fatted calf for him. Say what? He killed the fatted calf for him? Yeah. You're supposed to kill the fatted calf when something good happens. Yeah. Your son graduates from college. You kill the fatted calf for that because your son did something good and you're proud of him. Your daughter gets married. Yeah. Something good. You're proud of her. Your son and daughter-in-law have their first child. It's a celebration. It's something good. You're supposed to kill the fatted calf. Not when your rebellious son runs out of money on prostitutes and comes home for more. You killed the fatted calf when he did evil, but you wouldn't kill it when I did good. At the moment he messed up, you celebrated his return after the worst mess up he could do. You're celebrating his sin. You're celebrating his... He, li- he literally looked you in the eye and said, Pops, I wish you were dead. And you're celebrating him? Wow. You know, there's some of you here today and there is nothing in your past that you could look to that God could celebrate with you. And the father looks at his older son. He says, my son... I am always with you. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because this brother of yours, he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive again. And the parable ends there. What the father is literally saying to to the older brother, I'm not celebrating the sin that he committed while he was out. Yeah. I'm, not selling the rebe- I'm, not, I'm not celebrating the rebellion in his heart that took him out. I'm celebrating one thing and one thing only. He came back home. Him coming back home is better to me than him graduating college, better to me than him getting married, better to me than him having a baby, better to me than any good thing that he could have done. Yes, I'm proud of the good things that you do, but he came back home. That's the value. My son. The older brother still thinks the father values obedience above all. And the father is looking into his eyes saying, my son, I value you. And if you knew how much I valued you, you would value me above my blessing, above my provision. Mm. You would value me. And if you would value me the way I value you, if you'd look into my eyes and see how much I love you and your heart would reciprocally love me in return, you couldn't help but obey me. Obedience is a consequence of love, not a replacement, not a substitute for it. 
Obedience is no substitute for love. God wants love. He wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know that you're valuable to him. He wants you to know that he loves you more than anything. He loves you more than the law. He loves you more than his commandments. He loves you. And in fact, he gives you his commandments because he loves you. It's all an expression of his love. This is the gospel right here, Luke 15. This is it. God crying out to you and me. I've got a celebration in heaven prepared for your return. For your return. For you to come to your senses and say, God, I will return to my father that if there's something on the inside of you that would rise up and say, I will return to my father. And for some of you, something might wake up on the inside of you that says, I don't want to wait for the famine to strike. I'm going to return now before the famine strikes. What grace that is. I'm not going to wait till I hit rock bottom. I'm going to return today. The rejoicing in heaven Every angel in heaven rejoice. Can you imagine all of heaven doing the A-B-B dance? I wish I could do it, but I can't dance. Some white dude got my rhythm. It's okay, I got his credit. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I've communicated as best I can. Now, Holy Spirit, you have to overshadow my inability to communicate the depths of your love. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd move on every heart and every soul and that within every heart there'd be a turning towards you that that heart would arise, I will return. I will arise and return to my Father. And I thank you that you're so ready to receive us and to rejoice in our return. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm just going to ask that if anybody here is ready, your heart is ready, you realize you've been running from the Father, but now your heart is ready to return. You can do so very simply by just repeating this prayer after me. I'm just going to ask you to do it in your heart. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask you to come up to the front. This is not about embarrassing you or putting you on the spot. This is simply about giving you an on-ramp, an opportunity in your own heart. This is between you and God. All you have to do is in your heart, whether you're on the live stream or here live, repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me and that I'm valuable to you. I'm so valuable to you that you left your throne in heaven to come search for me. Lord Jesus, I hear your voice. And in my heart, I say yes to you. I'm coming to you. I need you. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for my sin, 
that you arose from the dead. I receive you today. Come into my heart. Forgive me of all of my sin. Make me alive in you. Reconnect me to your love. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer in your heart for the first time, or even if you're rededicating your heart to the Lord today, I want to encourage you to tell someone. Some of our leaders are going to be here at the altar at the end of service. You can come and tell one of us. You can go to the Connection Center. You can come tell me personally. I'll be here. We're here for you as a church body to simply encourage you in your walk with the Lord. That's all. Because we're all trying to walk a little bit closer to Him every day. We love you. And we're so thankful that you're here today. Each and every one of you. My buddy, Pastor David Sylvie from Commission Church is here. And Commission Church is here. Give it up for him. Welcome. So many friends, brothers and sisters. Have a wonderful day today. Eat the fat and drink the sweet. Share some with those who have none. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. God bless you today. We're dismissed. Thank you.